right, everybody, welcome to Inside the Hexagon, our latest episode. I'm your host, Phil Lanades, alongside my co-host, Josh Molina. Josh, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited to jump into the second ever uh, Strike Force MMA show uh, and also, of course, discuss a little bit of the fallout for Shamrock versus Gracie. So if you're ready, let's uh, let's jump right in. Let's do it. All right. So coming out of Shamrock versus Gracie, um, as you heard, if you listen to my interview with Scott Coker, you know, there was a lot of success that was experienced there. A lot of a lot of obstacles to overcome to get to that point. But but they were very happy with uh, what shook out. But Scott was not expecting this to be a regular thing, you know, maybe once or twice a year. Um, while he continued with his other activities, but the uh, the San Jose Arena people were so pleased with the numbers and everything that happened that they asked, "Hey, when's the next one?" And so, almost three months to the day after uh, Shamrock versus Gracie, they uh, they put on Revenge, which is what we're going to discuss today. But coming out of Shamrock versus Gracie, uh, as we mentioned at the the end of our first episode, Caesar Gracie tested positive for the active ingredient marijuana, and he was suspended uh, for three months. He never fought again, so it didn't really matter. Uh, but again, beyond that, this was something where um, they were going to have to really get to work really quickly. And they didn't have as much time to get ready for this show as they did the first show. So there was a lot to get done uh, in you know a very, very short amount of time. So let's jump into kind of some of the nuts and bolts of the event. The main event, this is interesting, was originally supposed to feature Kevin Randleman taking on Vitor Belfort. But there had to be a change, uh, which we'll discuss in just just a second. But main eventing with, with Randleman and Belfort was a real change from the their approach, uh, from Coker's approach uh, that we saw in the first, uh, you know, the first event in that uh, there would you know this would not be a main event featuring two local fighters but instead it would be two combatants that uh you know had an international big time international reputations but really no local connections and uh both belfort and randleman were former ufc champions uh belfort a former ufc light heavyweight champion randleman a former heavyweight champion uh and one one could say that you know that uh, a main event between those two would really bring national credibility to the fledgling strike force promotion Unfortunately, uh, Randleman had to pull out about four weeks before the event. Again, we discussed that during the uh, during my interview with Coker. Uh, but he had to pull out about a month before he developed a lung infection and had surgery for it. But a recurrence of the infection caused him to have to pull out of the Belfort fight. Uh, after recuperating, he would return to the cage about four months later in pride, ironically on the same card as Belfort, though they would not be fighting each other. And Randleman um, would make his Strike Force debut in 2009, which we'll cover in the future. And I just want to say again, if you did not hear uh, my interview with Coker, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that. He's got a very interesting story on uh, seeing Randleman as he was dealing, having dinner with him as he was dealing with that, that lung infection. But uh, anyway, for his part, the, Belfort would be coming off a win against little-known Anthony Rhea, uh, but he had lost his previous three bouts before that against Randy Couture, Tito Ortiz, and the man he would end up facing in the main event of Strike Force Revenge, uh, which would be Alistair Overeem. Uh, Reem had submitted Belfort via guillotine at Pride Total Elimination 2005, so this was going to be a chance for the Brazilian to avenge himself. Uh, Overeen, who was really, really starting to fill out physically, he could not make 205, so the fight ended up being contested at 210 pounds. Uh, he was also coming off a loss. He had been submitted by Fabricio Verdun at Pride Total Elimination Absolute, but had won two bouts uh, right before that, so he had won two of his last three. You know, a couple things, Phil. One, when you talk about your interview with Scott Coker, I don't know how many people have a real strong understanding of Coker, but he's such a breath of fresh air and always has been in terms of his personality. He's not one of these bombastic MMA personalities and promoters that we have come to know in the world of combat sports. He's he's really thoughtful and he's really smart and he's really articulate and he really cares about the sport and that shows in your interview. And I think that's important for people to know that we can get all caught up in sort of the hype of all of it, but at the center, there's, there's, you know, Strike Force was built on this idea of a love for MMA and wanting to spotlight the athletes in MMA. And Coker was and is exactly the perfect promoter for that. Did you get that sort of sense when you were talking to him? 
Yeah, and I, you know, I know him um, somewhat. You know, he was my boss for a while, and mm-hmm. and I've gotten to know him a little bit over the years. And we used to sit down at a, a bagel place in Willow, the Willow Glen neighborhood in San Jose, and you know, talk talk about what was coming up. And so I, you know, I got to know him some, and just yeah, again, such a. I don't know Dana White at all. Shook his hand once, but um, I have known a lot of other MMA promoters, regional promoters, and that sort of thing. And yeah, Scott really does stand out because he's very much a team guy. He's very mm-hmm. much, and, and he really has a strong martial arts background. You know, Dana's got a background in boxing, and you know, Scott just really comes for the more more traditional martial arts background. And I think it really does bleed through into his mindset and how he approaches things. And you know, he's very humble. He's very, you know, yeah, just like what's good for the sport, what's good for the promotion. And I think it, it, it yeah, it really does bleed through and. It's a pleasure to talk with him, and I'm not just saying that, and I'm looking forward to talking with him more in the future. Yeah, and the other thing I wanted to talk a little bit about is just sort of Alistair Overeem and what a, a journeyman sort of legend he has become. If we could look at him in today's eyes for a second, it's really stunning to think about the longevity of his career and his evolution as a fighter. I mean, he debuted... I think it, I mean, more than 20 years ago, I think it was 1999. And you know, he's been, think about this, Fedor, the, the great Fedor, who, you know, is considered to be one of the great heavyweights of all time, you know, re, reached his peak a long time ago and, you know, retired a couple of times. And he's, you know, he's, he's long past his prime. And Alistair is still a, a heavyweight contender in the UFC. I mean, he's fought 64 times inside the cage think about that 64 times uh and then before that he had a whole kickboxing career 16 times you know fighting there and uh you know he's he's obviously reaching that point where he's not going to be able to fight at a competitive level too much longer he's 40 years old but i mean he's still a guy who is sort of you know a top 10 contender in the ufc today and you know he's really intriguing because you know, we see him on this show, and he's like this young, kind of like tall, skinny guy who's fighting, and he's the lesser known. But we would find out, you know, he would go on to have this career where, you know, he'd have great victories. You know, he would, obviously, he would TKO Brock Lesnar, and uh, he would avenge a loss over Fabricio Verdum, and, you know, he'd beat Mark Hunt, and then he'd look really bad against guys like Big. Bigfoot Silva, oh, that was a good fight. Travis Brown, and if you look up on YouTube, he's even fought Chuck Liddell. So it's he's sort of this throwback where these guys would jump up and down and fight different weight classes and be able to go in there and bulk up or you know cut cut weight and be able to fight different types of people. And he's just always been one of those fighters to me that is just very enigmatic and. The other thing that's sort of stunning about him is his physique, okay? So we don't need to say a lot about um, <laughs> about Alistair Overeem and sort of, you know, what's out there on the internet in terms of, yeah. you know, his history. But, like, if you just look at his physique, I mean, he is so skinny in this fight against mm-hmm. Vitor Belfort. You know, he just looks like... Well, a, it, well let's let's say yeah. he's skinny in this fight in comparison to what he looks like now. I, yeah, he, yeah. If, if you go back and you look at some of his early pride fights... He is a skin. He's skinnier than this. Like you can see, he's start definitely starting to fill out at this point. But yeah, he he's his the body transformation over the years has been you know pretty pretty uh, pretty marked. And and uh, you touched on it. it did, you know, obviously, I don't want to de- delve into rumor and innuendo you know too much. But there's you know obviously the thought of chemical enhancement being part of it. You know, pride. Uh, the the drug testing not quite as stringent as it you know as it is today, and and even in the UFC back then. So. It's you know it's a different ball game now, but but yeah, what you're saying, I, I completely agree with. It is pretty stunning to to see how he's transformed over the years. Yeah, I mean, if you're somebody who just knows the Overeem from the UFC and you go YouTube his early fights, oh his, man, his body totally is, different. <laughs> <laughs> totally you know, different. And, and so um, it just sort of shows you know his growth, his longevity. A lot of that is similar. It's sort of in boxing too. If you if you look at Floyd Mayweather and you watch him in his early fights, you know, he's very, you know, sort of not, you know, obviously these fighters aren't skinny. They are uh, very much in shape and athletic, but they're just by comparison to 
what they would become. Um, so, you know, Alistair has always been one of my favorite fighters because he's got a little bit of that Kung Lee style to him. He's an outstanding kick, kickboxer. Uh, you can sort of feel his kicks when he lands. And uh, he's one of these guys who's like a little smarter than he should be in the cage. Like he's very thoughtful and methodical and he very much cares about getting hit in the face like he is he's just a different kind of fighter and um you know it shows because sometimes he can fight a little bit defensive and cautiously he kind of reminds me of you know for our older school boxing fans out there thomas hitman hearns who had like just deadly power in his right hand if he hit you you were done go google uh Hitman Hearns versus Roberto Duran, and you will see one of the saddest one-punch knockouts you could ever imagine, you know, taking place at Caesars Palace. But watching Overeem in this fight and then thinking about all his other fights, it's just fascinating because Overeem, and maybe you disagree with me here, Phil, uh, but he has sort of what, you know, we call kind of a glass jaw a little bit. Like, and he gets hit, he gets knocked out bad and um, I'll let you move on and we'll start talking about the show but I when I, as soon as I started reviewing the show and watching it it reminded me of the fight he had last last year with Rosenstrike when he was winning this fight like he was far ahead it was a masterful defensive fight he was picking apart this guy who was looking for one punch one punch and I was like literally like seconds left being like man he did it he pulled it off he won the fight and then he got caught with a right hand, guy busted his lip open. Yeah, we, that we lip was nasty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we talked about on the on uh, you know our first show. We talked about uh, you know the knockout with uh, Ty Tyron Woodley and Nate Marcor. I mean, this one was the sadder. I mean, the other one was like shocky. This one is just like, oh, Alistair, you were so close. <laughs> I feel so yeah. bad for you. You know, uh, but I mean, I love Overeem. He, you know, he's he's just an amazing fighter and uh, he's truly unique i don't think there's anyone like him with his skill set yeah I, I agree he's one of my favorite he's one of my favorite guys to watch you know the glass jaw thing you can kind of go back and forth on but he's definitely gotten his share of being knocked out and obviously tons of highlights of him putting someone else's lights out but he is one of my favorite guys to watch unfortunately the fight that we're going to discuss in a little bit is not one of <laughs> not one of my favorite ones to watch um but we'll, we'll get there but uh, I did want to mention there were several fighters who fought on the uh, the first Strike Force card that would also compete at Revenge. That included Daniel Pewter, Eugene Jackson, Josh Thompson, Harris Sarmiento, Kung Lee, Gilbert Melendez, and Clay Guida. And we'll get to those, of course. Thompson would face Sarmiento in the main card opener, while Kung Lee would take his, the, the next step in his uh, MMA career. Uh, and my, uh, Melendez, of course, coming off the win over Sarmiento, he would challenge Clay Guida for his newly won Strike Force lightweight championship. All right. As we like to as we like to do, we want to also discuss what was going on in the UFC and Pride around this time. A very very interesting UFC event, uh, UFC 60, took place on May 27, 2006, at the Staples Center in Los Angeles. A couple weeks before Revenge, the main event featured Matt Hughes, UFC welterweight champion, in a non-title catchweight bout against UFC Hall of Famer Hoist Gracie. Uh, this marked Gracie's return to the octagon, having last fought at the UFC or for the UFC at UFC five, which he went a uh, a 36 minute draw with Ken Shamrock. Shamrock and Gracie would be the first inductees into the UFC Hall of Fame in 2003. Uh, for this fight, however, there would be no big movie style ending as Hughes took Gracie down and just pounded on him until referee John McCarthy stepped in at 4:39 of the first round and stopped the fight. Uh, on, the uh, on the undercard, Melvin Gillard, the young assassin, knocked out Rick Davis, Gabriel Gonzaga, TKO'd Fabiano Scherner. Spencer Fisher put Matt Wyman to sleep with a walkaway flying knee, which, by the way, if, you, uh, if you're interested, I would highly recommend looking that up. It is one of the coolest-looking flying knee finishes you will ever see. Uh, and then Jeremy Horn submitted late replacement, uh, a guy known as... Uh, Chael Sonnen <laughs> with an arm bar. Uh, this was pre-bad guy persona uh, when Chael was kind of still finding himself, and you can you can chalk that up to or him being on the undercard to that. Uh, on the main card, Mike Swick would submit future Strike Force fighter Joe Riggs with a guillotine. Brandon Vera uh, would do the same to Asuario Silva. Diego Sanchez would beat John Alessio by unanimous decision. And the co-main event saw Dean Lister get uh, Alessio Sakara with a triangle choke. One of the things I noticed there was that you had a guy named John Alessio and a guy named Alessio Sakara on the same card, which is 
interesting. Uh, and then uh, to look at that event, though, this is probably the most the most important part of it, I guess, would be that the show did extremely well financially. It drew 620,000 pay-per-view buys, which was the best-selling pay-per-view event in the UFC's history up to that point. And it was the first event uh, for the UFC to break the $20 million mark in gross pay-per-view sales, according to MMA Weekly. Com. So a pretty pivotal, uh, pivotal event for the UFC. Uh, over in Pride, only five days before Revenge, Pride uh, fighting kick, kicked off its welterweight Grand Prix tournament in Japan. Uh, in non-tournament bouts, we saw Tetsuya Kawajiri beat one of MMA's true enigmas, Charles Crazy Horse Bennett, via first-round knee bar. Uh, which, by the way, I just happened to, as I was preparing for this, I happened to look up uh, Bennett, and he's still active. He's lost, I believe it was 14 consecutive fights. Uh, at this point, but uh, a very interesting guy who I actually got to work with a little bit um, for one of the events I did PR, one of the MMA events I did PR for, uh, and actually he was easy to work with, but but mm-hmm. an interesting guy. Um, another Japanese MMA legend, Hayato, uh, Hayato Sakurai, knocked out Olaf Afonso in the first round. Afonso is actually the guy that Gilbert Melendez beat for the WC lightweight title. Uh, in tournament bouts, future multi-time Strikeforce competitor Joey Villasenor lost to Rio Chonan via split decision, and future Strikeforce light heavyweight champion Gegard Musasi beat Makoto Takamoto via TKO when he broke his eye socket. Uh, that does not sound like fun. Uh, and then, in addition, Dennis Kang defeated Ninjahua by KO via punches, and future Strikeforce competitor Phil Baroni. Uh, who would actually face Shamrock, Frank Shamrock, in Strike Force the following year after this card lost to Kazuo, Kazuo Misaki via unanimous decision. All right, this brings us to Strike Force Revenge. It would take place on June 9, 2006, almost exactly three months to the day after Shamrock versus Gracie. Uh, as with the first Strike Force event, it would take place at the HP Pavilion, though with this event without Frank Sham- Shamrock on the marquee, drew 10,374, which is about 8,000 fewer fans uh, than in March in their, their uh, initial event. Still, I, I would say, a, a very respectable crowd to draw. Yeah, it's hard to criticize when you got more than 10,000 people in the building. But something was lost a little bit with this show. First of all, there there's just less sort of um, info about this show that is available, which sort of points to the amount of you know attention that the show got at the time. We've already talked about how uh, media was really not on board with MMA other than sort of a, a gimmicked style coverage other than UFC at this point. And even with the UFC, they're still trying to build their brand and become sort of that other mainstream mainstream sport. So this show, it, it drew a large, uh, large crowd. Certainly, you're not going to get 10,000 people. I doubt even the WWE at this time was getting 10,000 people into that building for for something and they had tons of TV. So just sort of, that was something that was a little bit different that sort of felt about this from the clips that are available on this on this show. Um, the first show, of course, it was just special. It was unique. Part of it is the debut. First time is always something special, but of course we had Frank Shamrock. We had that Shamrock name, that Shamrock Gracie name. That That's still sort of like, uh, those names are just forever long-lasting and iconic and seared into you know MMA fans' mind. Uh, when you look at sort of it, it feels like uh, opposite of the first show. It feels like an imported main event. You got Vitor Belfort and you got Alistair Overeem, and these are guys who have been super well known in other areas and or you know outside of Strikeforce. So. Belfort got the big uh, pop, so to speak, when they introduced him. It sort of felt like, hey, we're seeing this this UFC sort of uh, guy, this guy who built his name already, and we're kind of cool to be here watching him right now. And that's really, you need some of that when you're starting these new promotions, and when you're trying to build a brand, you need some of the old guys to you know, he's not old at this time, but he, you need some of those guys who have a name already. Say, say the more established guys. Yeah, yeah, the more established guys. You need some of that. But really, and what Coker was able to do with the first show was establish the new stars and try to do that. This more more felt like they were sort of going after people who had already had a name. And Overeem at this time is is far lesser known than Vitor Belfort. And so, you know, he, he didn't get as much of a, a crowd reaction. The crowd was here to see Belfort. And I think they were probably here to see him 
get a win. You know, they were expecting something exciting. And then they just sort of don't match up well, as we'll talk about later in the main event. You know, they're, they're just, their chemistry is a little bit uh, different. But that the fight actually lacked a little bit of that energy that Shamrock versus Gracie had. Obviously, this fight would go the distance, and the first one would not. It would end really quickly. So, um, sort of entirely different main events here. Yeah, and I'll say I, I agree with you. I don't think um, Alistair had actually made his uh, his UFC debut yet at this point. So, um, yeah, he, he had not he had actually not been in the UFC yet at this point. So, from a national perspective, as far as American fans go, I mean, they, you know, they just didn't really know who he was outside of the hardcore fans. So, uh, I, I agree with you one hundred percent. Vitor had been on obviously been on UFC TV. It you know had. Uh, that kind of fluke win over Randy Couture for the UFC light heavyweight title, which had only, I believe had been the previous year. Uh, so yeah, I, I agree with you. You're, you're, I think you're spot on with that. And yeah, definitely as you look through the clips and I will mention as we get into the undercard that there's no full, uh, video of this event. There are some fights that we could find clips for and, and we'll get into those, but, uh, the clips I did see, yeah, there was a noticeable difference in the crowd um, as far as the energy level and just the, the, the level of excitement and all that. So I, I agree with you completely on that. Now, now right. Al- Alistair did, uh, he was in pride by this time, right? Yes, and, yeah, and, right. And, and yes. He, he, this was actually the rematch. We, we should talk about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah which, which we will. We'll, yeah. we'll get into when we get to that main event. Yes, no, he definitely fought in pride, but pride had not debuted in the, in the United States yet at this point. And just, you know, again, outside of the hardcore fans, the kind of, you know, in wrestling terms, they call them tape traders back in the day, the, you know, the real underground fans. You know, I was watching Pride on DVD when I could find the DVDs, but that was always months after, you know, afterward. And I was a pretty hardcore MMA fan. So I'm I'm going to go ahead and assume that a lot of fans in the U.S., again, unless you were a hardcore fan, you didn't know who Alistair Overeem was. You might, you know, Valentine, his brother, um, or Valentine, I think, uh, his brother, he, I think he had fought in the UFC, so maybe you might recognize the Overeem name. But, yeah, he just he did not have the cachet that somebody like Vitor did at that point. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This was the Vitor-Belfort main event, and people were looking forward to a different fight entirely. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, oh, they, just... got a different, they got a different <laughs> fight, all right. Just not, not, not the one anybody wanted. Um, all right, so let's jump into the undercard. Uh, in the opening bout, Chris Amarante submitted Sean Bassett with an armbar at 4:37 of the first round. Amarante was 1-0 heading into this bout. Bassett was 0-1. This would actually be Amarante's final MMA bout, uh, so he would end his career at 1-1. Bassett would complete, uh, I'm sorry, compete twice more in Strike Force. Not really much else to say on this one. Um, no, no video of any of the undercard fights exists that I could find. So. Uh, not, not much really to say beyond just kind of the stats of, uh, you know, what they're, where they were at in their career and that sort of thing. Uh, in the second bout, Clint Coronel got Juan Miranda with an Anaconda choke submission at 143 of the second round. Uh, this would be Coronel's MMA debut. While Miranda was undefeated at 3-0, Coronel would fight two more times for Strike Force both in 2007. Uh, Miranda, for his part, would not compete again for the promotion. He would lose about to Dominic Cruz a few months after Revenge before going 3-3 to end his career uh, in 2010 with a 7-5 record. Luke Stur- you know, and I, I actually, I want to stop and say something real quick. You know, as I do this research, it's, as we all know, in MMA and pro wrestling, retirements rarely stick. First retirements rarely, rarely stick. So a lot, and a lot of fighters just, they never officially retire. They just don't get, you know, they don't get offers anymore. And so, you know, you don't, uh, they don't fight anymore. So I kind of hesitate to say guys have retired because again, a lot of them, especially undercard guys, they didn't necessarily make a you know a public statement saying hey I'm done fighting it's just you know the offer stopped coming in and if an author, offer came in and they were able they might still take it so I, I try to say you know their career even when I say their career ended it's it's just hard to say that because I you know you you never know but I as we go through the show I just want to kind of disclaim put a disclaimer out that I will try to be as accurate as I can about that kind of stuff but mm-hmm. you know sometimes I'm just kind of somewhat guessing that they're done if they haven't fought in 10 years, which I think is a pretty safe bet. Well, you never know, Phil, when all of a sudden you're going to find out they're going to get paid $2 million to show up in Saudi Arabia. So you got to be. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. That's very true. That's discussion for another time. All right. 
so moving on to the the next bout, Luke Stewart beat Bill Duvall via armbar submission at 115 of the first round. Luke Stewart, a very, very interesting character in Strikeforce history. He spent the entirety of his nine-fight career with the promotion, promotion, which is the most fights for any Strike Strikeforce fighter who did not compete for another MMA league. Um, very interesting guy. San Francisco-based tattoo artist, from what I could find. Uh, that's still what he's doing now. Uh, he's a jiu-jitsu black belt under Half Gracie. Uh, this would be his MMA debut. I'm sure he's somebody that we'll discuss more in the future. Uh, this was Duvall's third and final fight in MMA. He would not compete in the sport again. He finished his career at 1-2. and two. Uh, Jared Hammond in the next bout TKO'd Scott Graham via punches at 136 of the second round. Graham fought on Strike Force's uh, Shamrock versus Gracie. He won the the first bout, uh, the first MMA bout in the promotion's history. Heading into this fight, he was two and zero. Hammond, for his part, might be a name that that some UFC uh, uh, UFC fans would recognize. He was one and zero heading into this fight. He would not fight in Strike Force again, but would go on to have a very respectable career competing seven times in the UFC with wins over Rodney Wallace and C.B. Dalloway. Uh, he last fought in 2014, ending his career with a 14-6 and record. All right, moving forward, Daniel Pewter, well-known, talked about him a lot in the first episode. He submitted Tom Tuggle via armbar at 28 uh, seconds of the first round. Got to say, Tom Tuggle, probably not the most uh, intimidating name in MMA history. Uh, Pewter uh, was fresh off his win over Jesse Fujarczyk at Shamrock versus Gracie. He would make quick work of Tuggle, submitting him with an armbar at only 28 seconds of the first round. Tuggle's only strike force fight, he would compete one more time in MMA, which was a loss later in 2006, ending his career with an 0-3 record. Pewter, of course, would compete for strike force again later in the year, which we'll discuss on a future episode. Then we get to the the kind of the main event of the undercard. Eugene Jackson got a TKO win over Mike Seal via punches at 249 of the second round. Jackson at 13-8-1 was coming off a naked uh, a naked win. Ha! A win over Jorge Naked Man Ortiz at the previous Strike Force event, and he would be facing a very experienced fighter in Mike Seal, who was 10 and 11, heading into this bout. Jackson would fight two more times in his career, both in Strike Force, which again we'll discuss on future episodes. Seal would rebound from this loss to win his next three fights, but then he would lose his following four scraps, which included appearances in Sengoku and Bellator. Uh, his most recent bout was in 2018. Again, he's a guy that I hesitate to say is retired because he just fought two years ago, so who knows, but um, but that's where he, uh, he stands at this point. All right, we're going to jump into the main card now. Uh, I want to start off with Josh Thompson. He rebounded from his loss to Clay Guida uh, at Shamrock versus Gracie with an arm triangle submission of Harris Sarmiento at uh, 319 of the third round. Josh was 8-2 and two heading into this bout, looking to rebound from his lightweight championship loss uh, to Guida. Sarmiento was 20-13. and 13. He had also lost on that first card, submitting to Gilbert Melendez's punches. Uh, Thompson getting the finish really got him back on the right track, and he would start an eight-fight win streak uh, with, with all of those except one coming uh, in the strike force cage. This would be Sarmiento's fourth straight loss, and he'd, be, he'd lose one more bout before getting four wins in a row. Um, this would be his last bout in Strike force. He would end his career in 2014 with a 36 and 26 record. You know, in the uh, first show we did, I heaped a lot of praise on Gilbert Melendez for his intensity and how he would come to define the Strike Force brand in terms of the kind of fighter that he was. And I think we also need to start talking about Josh Thompson hand in hand uh, with Gilbert Melendez because. These were two guys who really sort of epitomized what it meant to be scrappy and hungry and wanting to be something sort of bigger and helping Strikeforce propel itself to that level. And Thompson was just an amazingly excited, exciting fighter to watch also. You know, he, he came out a little bit later in terms of, you know, sort of having people notice him than Gilbert but I mean this guy was 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 crazy intense all in every one of his fights was exciting he had this edge and this competitiveness and you know I'm sure that we're going to talk about the the trilogy between he and Gilbert Melendez a Absolutely. lot you know a lot later on but I mean these fights I mean these were 15 rounds of some of the the most entertaining MMA that you're going to ever see because these guys had a lot of respect for each other. And so, you know, Josh Thompson, when we're trying to explain to people 
why strike force mattered and why they were not just sort of some other of the many MMA companies that have been around. Um, you know, Josh Thompson is one of those reasons why, because he was a legit talented star. And of course, you know, he had a career in the UFC as well. And he was very successful. And, you know, he, he KO'd Nate Diaz, you know, later on, if you watch that on YouTube, it's, it's amazing because the Nate Diaz we know today, the guy who, you know, choked out Conor McGregor right when he was in the prime of his trash-talking era, uh, Nate Diaz it was knocked out by a head kick, you know, by... Um, by, uh, by Josh Thompson later. And so we're seeing these early guys. And, you know, I think it's a good reminder, too, is that when you're an MMA fan, you sort of have to just sort of love all of it because you never know if the guy you're watching today who's on the undercard or who's the first or second match on the show is going to eventually be the guy who's in the main event. And Josh Thompson would definitely be one of those guys. But, you know, it's cool because you see him developing his skills any better but one thing that's always there is that intensity and that fearlessness and that that energy and he he and uh, he and Gilbert they really respected each other you know they, they they really had a amazing respect for one another at least they ended up that way and they were able to put on these these great fights you know they were sort of to use a wrestling analogy they were kind of like so technically skilled they're like the Shawn Michaels and the Bret Hart's of the early WWE, you know, when they're like fighting at the Survivor Series and not not in the big shows at the end. It's just so amazing to watch Josh and to watch Gilbert at this time. And, you know, Josh Thompson was and still is just like this incredibly charismatic guy to, to follow on social media and on YouTube as well. Yeah. Spot on. Very good insight. I 100% agree. some point we'll disagree, I'm sure. So we'll get there. Um, looking at the, the next bout, we saw Bobby Southworth versus James the Sandman Irvin. It ended in a no contest when both fighters fell through the cage door at only 17 seconds of the opening round. Uh, they, there is fight. There is a footage available of this. Uh, you can hardly call it a fight, but the, there is footage available out there. Um, the fight commences. They touch gloves. Getting close, Southworth, Southworth lands a right to Irvin's face. Um, they clinch, and Southworth pushes Irvin into the cage door, which had not yet been fully secured. Um, they both tumble through and, and fall down. Uh, Phil Baroni and Frank Shamrock, they're both on commentary. And, you know, this is I, this is controversial. Uh, they both question the severity of the apparent knee injury that Irvin had suffered. Uh, Baroni, in particular, really came down hard on Irvin, saying that, you know, Sandman couldn't seem to make up his mind as whether or not you know, his head or his knee was hurt. I'm like, well, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, well, they can both be hurt. You know, it doesn't have to be one or the other. But uh, he also said Irvin had come to the fight heavy and, and didn't want to cut more weight. So he saw it. Baroni said that he believed Irvin saw it as a way out. Uh, Shamrock said he'd have to be dead not to get back up and fight. You know, so they, they, they were both pretty hard on, while kind of backtracking at the same time. They were pretty hard on Irvin. Uh, in the end, it's ruled a no, no contest. Very clearly disappointed. Southworth stayed in the cage to hear the announcement while Irvin was helped to the back. You know, who was to blame? I talked about this with Scott Cooker a little bit. He said he basically said he didn't remember. He didn't want to throw it off on it and throw anybody under the bus because he didn't remember who it was. Uh, it was a, a white guy in a blue button up shirt with a lanyard on, you know, if, <laughs> if, that, if that helps at all. I didn't recognize him. So my guess is that it's a, a CSAC guy, California State Athletic Commission member um, or somebody they had hired. I, I don't know that for a fact, but uh, either way, especially for a second event, and the irony being that, you know, they survived the first event with a, a cage that was being held together with zip ties. And then, you know, you, you get this happen in the, the second event and, and obviously not a not a good look at all. And, and not something that, you know, just not a good look for a promotion that's still finding its legs. Well, if I could be so bold as to say this was a disaster. <laughs> I mean, this this made it look so Mickey Mouse. Uh, the fact that this happened. You know, we came off this first show where we talked about all the little things that made the first show feel meaningful and special and impactful, like you were part of something really cool, right? And, and when this happens, when fighters fall through the open door in a cage, 
it feels very odd. Like, what are we watching? Like, who's organizing this thing? It's, you know, perception is everything. You know, you know that as a public relations person. Um, you know, it's it, it's all about, like, what do people think? And if they think they're at a event where it's serious and it matters, that is a big deal. And if guys fall through a cage door, they sort of feel like, who's what's going on? And so I thought this was just kind of a, a very unfortunate um stroke here for for strike force because um obviously it's 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 somebody's fault but there's it's it, things happen mistakes happen all the time but when it happens during a live event right at the beginning it sort of looks um you know it looks really kind of bad it's like pro wrestling almost this is the kind of stuff you expect to happen in pro wrestling you know like you know yeah except I, it sure... would be except it would be rigged to happen instead of you yeah, know, it... just on a mistake yeah, like when you watch pro wrestling, you sort of expect there's going to be some shenanigans and some goofiness. And, you know, if it works, it works. And it's part of the show. You don't expect that with an MMA. I don't know if you remember St. Valentine's Day Massacre, Phil. I don't know if that's oh, yeah, before of course. you're the, the, Yeah, the, I know exactly where you're going. The steel cage match being thrown open by the Paul White at the time. And, yeah, I know, I know yeah. exactly what you're talking about. You know, so big choke slam through the cage. Stone Cold wins because he hits the ground first. And that's like in the in the parlance of pro wrestling. That's like, wow, what a you know intriguing ending. Uh, you don't want intriguing endings in MMA fights. You want definitive endings. And so I felt like that was just sort of a bad thing. It's also like if you know if you're just kind of watching, it's hilarious. It's funny. It's like, oh my god, I can't believe this happened. And then like if you're uh, like a legit like fan, you're like really worried about the fighters. Like holy cow, they could have been injured in a way that they're not supposed to i was really turned off by the commentary but i was turned off by brody's commentary yeah um, he, I, I just didn't understand it's like he's a competitor he i mean he needs to be putting himself in those positions and explaining to the audience and sort of defending the sport in that this is a bad thing that happened but you know anybody who steps in the cage they're not like afraid to fight. I mean, I, I should say that obviously. Uh, yeah, every, I've, every... I've I've seen a few fights where I don't think the guy wanted to be there. Just a well, handful, but but by and large, <laughs> that's not the case. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, well, you know, and what I mean is like, yeah, everyone's gonna have fear because there's gonna be fight, and some guys clearly you could tell they're scared, you know, to death. What you know when they step in there, but I mean, to to question sort of somebody's heart and whether they want to fight after they've already fought before and they're in there doing it. I mean, I just don't think that's that's fair. Uh, sure, you could say that, uh, you know, some guys have more heart than others and other guys get up and are tougher than others. But I just sort of felt like, hey, come on, dude. The guy went through the cage on his back. He turned. You don't know what he's experiencing. We just don't yeah. know, especially in that moment. Um, he did get hit right before that, so he might have yep. been a little bit dazed. So I could totally see, you know, like, you're like, well, maybe I can get out of this. Maybe. I don't know. But um, I just felt like that was a little bit tough. And, you know, Frank saying he'd have to be dead. I mean, Frank's great. You know, it's a little bit of showmanship there, too. I mean, obviously, um, you don't have to be dead to, to stop fighting um, if you're in serious pain. So um, anyway, I just thought the whole thing was bad. Baroni's commentary, the fact that it happened. If you're in the audience, you know, you paid money to see this show. You're... You feel all about like you're cheated. Like, hey, I would rather take a bad fight than something like that. So, anyway, it was no one's really fault, but it was just a really unfortunate thing to happen. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I will zero in on the punch that you mentioned. There was definitely a, Southworth got a good shot in on, on Irvin. And as they were heading back towards the the cage, and who knows what type of effect that had. But, I, I you know, again, I agree with you that, I just, yeah, I wasn't a fan of Baroni and Shamrock coming down because you're not, they weren't there in, in like literally, I mean, when I say they weren't there, I mean, physically they were not in Irvin's position. You know, you don't know if he twisted his knee uh, when he went through the, the cage. I mean, he went flat on his back. Like it, it just, yeah, it's, it's speculating like that when you don't really know the full extent of it. I mean, I can see saying hypothetically it could be a lack of heart, but, but I, I yeah, I just, I think overall it was a, I agree with you 100% as a bad, bad look, but uh, one of the a very interesting note there's a there's a really interesting graphic out there you can look it up on uh the sandman on james Irvin that uh, he's got to be one of the most unlucky fighter in mma history and if not the most unlucky he's one of them I mean, some some would even say just cursed i mean the first part of his career starts off great he wins nine of his first 10 fights which includes 
a very, very memorable flying knee knockout of Terry Martin at UFC 54. I believe it was the second round, and, and Irvin just walks across the cage and then just lands this flying knee that per- puts Martin out cold. It's it's one of the coolest knockouts that you'll see. Uh, but then after this fight, or starting with this fight, uh, with Southworth, you, you begin a, a run of bad luck that just I, few other pro sports careers, never mind just MMA, but few other pro sports careers have seen. Uh, less than a year later at UFC 70, 71, Irvin suffers tears to his MCL and ACL in a fight with Tiago Silva. He's unable to continue. Uh, seven months later, he eats an illegal knee from Louise Kane and wins by DQ. 2008 really brought bad luck with Irvin pulling out of a UFC fight with Rashad Evans, which would have been a big, you know, big name fight. Uh, he pulls out in May due to a broken foot, and then he gets knocked out in 61 seconds by Anderson Silva in July, which is followed up by a nine-month uh, suspension for painkiller usage after the bout, which I read that Irvin basically said, like, do, de- dealing with the uh, the foot injury from uh, that he had to pull out of the Rashad Evans fight with, that that's why he started taking painkillers. So he gets busted for that. He pulls out of two UFC fights in 2009, both due to knee injuries. He loses two more uh, UFC fights in 2010, uh, which one of which costs him a broken orbital bone uh, and is then released. 2011, he's out of the UFC. He fights with Mike Chrisman, uh, and that ends in a no contest due to an illegal need, this time from Irvin. And then he's hit uh, with a second suspension, this one for steroids, which costs him a year. 2011, he flies uh, to Poland to fight in the KSW promotion. He misses weight by seven pounds uh, before being submitted in 33 seconds, uh, and then he he lost his last fight in 2010, ending or 2012, excuse me, ending his career uh, at 17 and 10. But but pretty difficult to argue that that not a not a great uh, I guess a pretty up and down career with most of it being down towards the latter end for the Sandman. Well. Come on, Phil. We need to we need to book this guy to win the ladder match, the Money in the Bank, in the opening <laughs> of WrestleMania, so yeah. we could, you know this guy can get his wit, you know all these wins get his, back. Yes, wins know, back. <laughs> and then and then the, he can lose the next night. But you know we'll give him one night where he can be <laughs> successful. I, from what I read, uh, he's he works in construction at this point. I don't know if that's that's accurate, but that's what yeah. I've read. But I, I yeah, he seems to have closed the book on his his MMA career. Um, Southworth, uh, for his part, he's, well, of course, we're going to discuss him more in future episodes. He's actually agreed to come on the podcast, uh, at some point. So we'll, we'll be looking to have him on, uh, in a future episode. Uh, in the next bout, Tyson Griffin TKO'd Dwayne Bang Lugwood with punches at 357 of the first round. Uh, Griffin was, uh, you know, pretty familiar name for, for UFC fans. He was undefeated at 6-0 and heading to this bout with the very well-seasoned Dwayne Bang Ludwig. Uh, in fact, Griffin had beat a then-undefeated Uriah Faber in only his third pro fight. Uh, Ludwig was coming off three straight wins, which included an incredible knockout of Jonathan Goulet in 11 seconds. Uh, there was some controversy around that finish. Dana White timed the KO at six seconds, uh, said he was going to give the UFC record to, uh, to 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 Ludwig, but the Nevada State Athletic Commission said no, that they had timed it 11 seconds for some reason. Uh, regardless, doesn't really matter because in the end, fellow Strikeforce vet George Masvidal would put Ben Askren to sleep with a flying knee in a very memorable highlight um, in five seconds at UFC 239 in 2019, so he, he beat the record anyways, but... Uh, yeah, definitely uh, fireworks expected in this one. No, vi- no video of the fight, unfortunately. Um, so we really only have just that it was a, a first-round TKO win for, for Ludwig. Bang would go on to uh, headline feature events for Strike Force. Uh, we he's also agreed to come on the show at some point, so we, we look to have we'll look to have him on in the future. For Griffin, this would be his only bout in Strike Force as he would sign with the UFC after this win over the UFC vet. Uh, in Ludwig, and he would go on to have a very long run in the UFC, sticking with them for five years, compiling an eight and six record in the promotion. He got wins over Clay Guida, Tiago Tavares, Gleison Tibau, Rafael Dos Anjos, and Hermes Franca. Uh, he retired in 2018 with a 17 and eight record. All right, moving on, we get to Kung Lee. This is a this is a fight that did have some footage, and we got to see the uh, the pre-fight video packages. Kung Lee gets a TKO via punches uh, over Mr. Unbreakable Brian Warren at 4:19 of the first round. Now they had pre-fight video packages on both these guys. It built up the feud a little bit. They had competed in San Shao kickboxing before. Leo won uh, via na- uh, unanimous decision. Uh, apparently, before that fight, Lee had made. They had been some kind of back and forth between the the two of them. Uh, Lee saw Warren eating ice cream 
stream the night before the event and said, hey, you, you know, watch it. I'm going to bring that up back up during the fight. Uh, <laughs> and then Warren, yeah, Warren, a little histrionic, a little bit of histrionics there. Warren gets him back the next day by throwing a packet of honey on Lee's breakfast table, saying he's going to need the energy that night. Uh, both the fighters talk about the other one being cocky. And, you know, of course, they're just confident and that sort of thing. But, you know, kind of building up this this feud between the two of them uh lee gets a big pop of course coming from you know the local crowd he gets the pyro uh something you know i, I thought strike force did really great to kind of differentiate itself from the ufc was they would kind of, not to say the ufc never used pyro or anything like that but uh they would utilize the what i really saw is the pro wrestling influence they you know build up their baby faces you know entrances with the pyro uh you know the video packages i i just felt like the, I felt like Strikeforce did that better in a lot of ways than the UFC. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it, it showed here, you know, the way that they approached this fight. But they uh, fight starts. Lee lands a nice kick early on before showing off some judo with a very, very nice hip lock takedown. Uh, more flashy kicks from Lee as the round goes on. Although it, so, I couldn't, couldn't pinpoint where it happened, but at some point it looked like Lee got his nose broke. Uh, but there, there was a good amount of clinching, so I expect, you know, maybe Warren's head uh, it hit him, but it's, it's hard to tell. Uh, to be honest with you, Warren, who I actually talked with a little bit when I was working in MMA and, and we talked about, you know, working together a little bit, uh, he really didn't offer a whole lot in this fight. He was really more on the defensive throughout, in my opinion. Uh, but in the end, Lee lands a really nice combo and gets a second straight uh, knockout via right hand. The crowd just, I mean, just blew up for the finish. They went crazy, and uh, but it was a, a big win for Lee for sure. Yeah, I don't know if I were trying to uh, promote a fight or if I were trying to get a guy back. I don't know if I'd throw a honey packet. You know? Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're gonna get, get him back, I don't know. That's the way that I do it, but I also don't know that Kung Lee would be a guy that I'd be looking to, you know, get get angrier at me. <laughs> I, I just don't think I'd do that. Yeah, ice cream and honey. I mean, I, I'm certain that there's never been any sort of uh, buildup using those two items in MMA <laughs> or pro wrestling for that matter. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, this was another good display for Kung Lee because as we talked about it, you know, even, you know, I haven't talked to Kung in 10 years and I'm still sort of like remembering, you know, what it was like to be in his presence and just sort of like thinking, oh my goodness, did this guy kick me right now? <laughs> dead you know he's just such a he's such a good fighter and he's so intense and he had this amazing sort of presence about him and and this, we saw this again just you know you know watching this fight it sort of reminded me of like he um you know he's really good but he never really like uh mugged off, mugged in the in the cage you know he didn't show off you could always see that he took the sport super seriously and he gave all and you could like, just look and see that in his eyes you know we saw a little bit more in this with his wrestling you know he did some takedowns and uh, we saw this much more than the first strike force showed so i think that uh you know kung was definitely trying to expand and take some risk and this was the right opponent where he could he could try to do that you know it, when you open yourself up a little bit you also sort of uh, become to some degree a little bit less of a defensive fighter a little bit less technical you can start to see a little bit of kung's vulnerabilities in terms of his defense in this and uh, that would later come into play when he would fight higher quality uh competitors and so uh you know we would see this with with scott smith and vanderlei silva later on you know in his in his his career but you could sort of see it here that you know when you're just an amazing intense striker you know your best defense is your offense and when you don't get your offense off first or when you can't knock the guy out or hurt the guy first then um, that's going to expose some of those defensive uh, weaknesses. Obviously, in this fight, he was uh, light years ahead, and so we didn't really see see him pay the price for for any of those mistakes. But I mean, Kung Lee's fights from start to finish, if they were all on, you know, if you could watch them all from beginning to end, and they're just exciting and uh, you know amazing displays of offense. Absolutely. Definitely a, a moving forward fighter. And, and you saw that in this bout, just uh, pouring it on with flashy kicks and that sort of thing. And, you know, he would, I, I will say he would get flashy after a win where, he, you know, he'd do the backflip and he'd do kind of like the, 
the warrior pose and stuff like that. But yeah, during the fight, I mean, just all intensity, all in, and, and it showed in this fight for sure. Uh, Mr. Unbreakable, Brian Warren, would not compete in Strike Force again. Really a journeyman in MMA. Um, he did fight several notable fighters, uh, including Lee, Jake Shields, Mayhem Miller, Jeremy Horn, and Ben Saunders. Uh, he competed in Bellator a couple times uh, early on in that promotion's history before ending his career in 2013 with an 18-17-1 MMA record. Moving on to the co-main event, we saw Gilbert Melendez take the Strike Force lightweight title via split decision uh, from Clay Guida. There is video of this fight out there, uh, with uh, complete with video packages. Uh, as we discussed earlier, Melendez was coming off the the win over Harris Sarmiento at Shamrock versus Gracie, while Guida Guida just won the lightweight belt against Josh Thompson. Big reaction for El Nino coming out, of course, fighting out of San Francisco. Good intensity during the faceoff. They touched the gloves and were off. Uh, the fighters traded takedowns in the first round with Gilbert striking, definitely standing out as a notch above Clay's. Uh, he landed a couple good punches in the opening round. In the second, Guida gets Melendez's back briefly, but El Nino grabs the champ's head in a kind of like a backpack Stone Cold Stunner, if you remember that move uh, from, from John Cena that, that he was doing for a while there. Uh, but rather than sitting down, he spikes Guida's head forward into the mat, which gets a huge reaction from the crowd. Uh, really, really cool, cool move to see. Uh, you know, and then uh, more power strikes were landed by Melendez to it and looked to me like Melendez was up 2-0. Uh, moving into the third round, uh, it was a little bit more even, but I'd still give it to Melendez. Guida's definitely got a chin, no question. Uh, Melendez's striking was not as technical as it would become later in his career. And Josh, you kind of touched on this earlier that you kind of it's exciting to see these fighters kind of develop their skills. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was, you know, that was something that we, you could see here that he was kind of early on in his striking exploits. But uh, it was something that it showed throughout the rest of the fight. Uh, in, in the fourth, both fighters began to tire a little bit, especially with Melendez throwing a lot of lever, leather. He was landing a good amount of the time, and Clay just didn't seem to have an answer for that. Uh, and then in the fifth and final round, Clay got an early takedown. Melendez's takedown defense and his ability to get back up once he was taken down was on display once again. I'd say Guida probably got the last round, but it, it was not enough, and Melendez was declared the winner, though it was split decision. And this was very weird to me. Um, Guida gets the he get he actually got one scorecard, 48 to 46, while El Nino got the other two, 50 to 45, which usually indicates that that third judge was watching a different fight apparently or <laughs> is related to Guida in some way. I, I, I don't know what fight that, that judge was watching because it should have been in a, a unanimous, unanimous decision for, for Melendez. Yeah, and let the record show that in the archives, the history of the Inside the Hexacon podcast, you were the first one to mention John Cena. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I think you're right. I think I, I'd have to go back and listen to see if you'd listened to him before. I'm sure it won't be the last time, but yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, well, you know, I think uh, obviously MMA scoring uh, has gotten better, I think. But, um, you know, it's a problem. It's a problem in boxing. It's always been a problem. And, you know, occasionally you have sort of this rogue judge that sort of sees a different fight. And it goes to that whole sort of, you know, 10-point must system type of scoring. But... There's no way you can give Guida 48-46. You know, you might be able to give him a round or two, but it's, it's nothing like that. He certainly did not win the fight. Um, so, I mean, that's sort of interesting. Melendez, uh, he's just hungrier. He's busier. He's not as technical, but pressure matters. When you put pressure on a fighter and it's, it's sort of close and competitive and both guys have, at this time, sort of comparable sort of skill sets, um, whoever is going to be the better conditioned fighter is going to be able to pull it out. And, and Melendez most of the time in his career was the most conditioned fighter inside the cage. And so we sort of saw that. I like the fight. It was sort of good back and forth. It was exciting. It, it was something that um, you got to see both of these guys and their heart and their determination. And you really couldn't take your eyes off it, not because it was always a super intense, but you kind of knew anything could happen at any moment. But I think Gilbert was just sort of in these superior positions more often. And uh, in these kinds of fights with similar styles, it's, that's what it really comes down to. Yeah, they, they yeah. say styles make fights. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that was the case here um, for sure. Uh, Melendez, of course, someone we'll be discussing at length. He's agreed to come on the podcast, and I definitely want to cover 
we'll probably look to do a separate episode on the uh, the Josh Thompson Gilbert Melendez trilogy. Hopefully, have both both of them have agreed to come on the podcast at some point, and I'm hoping to have a, a chat with both of them about the trilogy later on. Um, for his part, uh, the Carpenter Clay Guida, he this would be his last ride in Strike Force. He would fight once each in Shudo and the WEC before heading to the UFC, where he's been to this day, of course, and is still competing there uh, mm-hmm. currently as we record this. Uh, all right, now we're on to the main event. Uh, Alistair Overeem gets the unanimous decision uh, win over Vitor Belfort after three rounds. There is video of this fight out there. Um, I'm not going to recommend that you spend your time on it. It's it's mm-hmm. a pretty lackluster bout, to be honest with you. Uh, we mentioned earlier Overeem and Belfort have fought the previous year with the big Dutchman getting uh, the submission over the former UFC light heavyweight champion with a first-round guillotine in pride. Apparently, from the commentary, Belfort had come in somewhat heavy and had to drop about 15 pounds after landing uh, in San Jose's. And it uh, it seemed to affect him, in my mind, because uh, he did try to go for it early on. He did try some some strikes and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, there were a couple flashes of action early on, but it seemed to affect him, and he, he really seemed to tire in the second round. Uh, both fighters started out, you know, pretty tentative, but Belfort throws a big leaping left, or I'm sorry, a big left at the leaping over him. Didn't land, but got a big reaction from the crowd. You could tell the crowd was ready for for a finish. Um, the Brazilian got a good f- takedown in the first and, and dropped some strikes, but in kind of a weird move, Belfort dropped to his back, kind of like old school Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys that, you know, only had a ground game. He kind of dropped to his back when uh, when uh, Overeem kind of moved towards him and, and he let Overeem get into his guard, towards and that was towards the end of the first round. Uh, in the second round, Belfort gets another takedown at the beginning, uh, which Overeem evened up with his own takedown a little bit later. The action really slowed down, and neither neither combatant was going for it. A lot of laying and praying, uh, as uh, Stephen Quadros would say, after the takedowns, and the, the crowd began to, to get restless, and they booed a little bit. Uh, although I will mention Belfort got a really nice sweep from underneath to take top control later in the, in the, that round. And then in the final frame, Overeem gets some more takedowns, but he didn't really do much with them. Both fires, fighters really got a lot more booze. The biggest reaction the crowd gave in the final round was when the ref stood the fighters up. So just really not a whole lot to this fight overall. Uh, not much of a story there. In the end, it was Overeem who gets his hand raised via unanimous decision, though really neither fighter raised their profile uh, very much. Uh, this would be Belfort's only strike force appearance. He would split his next two bouts before winning five straight, uh, which would earn him a, a shot at then UFC middleweight kingpin Anderson Silva. Uh, with you may or may not remember Silva knocking Belfort out with a, a spectacular front kick to the mouth. Uh, he plans to make his one FC debut later on this year, uh, that being Belfort. And then uh, the Ream would be back in Strike Force the following year. He'd face uh, the headhunter Paul Buentello for the vacant heavyweight title. Uh, he suffered three straight losses in pride after this fight before deciding to finally move up permanently to heavyweight. Overeem would split two more bouts uh, before the the Buentello fight, of course. Uh, so overall, you know, a, a pretty solid card. You know, not definitely not on the level of Shamrock for the Grace uh, Shamrock versus Gracie as far as intensity and excitement and you know that sort of thing um you know good crowd uh you, know, you saw kung lee really breaking out as a star in my opinion and gilbert melendez solidifying himself as one of the the best lightweights in the world so there's some positive spots to this this event but but i wouldn't you know i wouldn't give it a big massive thumbs up did did steven quadros coin the phrase lay and pray so that's I read that that he actually he uh, termed it I want to say during the 2000 Pride uh, Heavyweight Grand Grand Prix that uh, Mark Coleman won I but yeah. I read that somewhere in preparation just kind of getting ready for this not this show but this podcast in general yeah. that he's actually the one that coined the term I you know I I I, I can't swear to that um, but but that's uh, yeah that's what I read is that he's actually Quadros is the guy. Yeah, that's a that's a great phrase, you know, and, uh, you know, we see sort of uh, Belfort going to the ground and, and sort of trying to pull in uh, uh, over him. And, uh, you know, it reminded me of when he fought Fabricio Verdum the second time and Verdum basically spent the entire fight trying to get over him to go to the ground with him and do the same thing. And over him was very smart. And, you know, he got his sort of win back by by not doing that you know this was not the best uh follow-up show to the first one uh it was it was not a bad show it just had too many things that were different from the original card and that it lost a little bit of its originality it lost a little bit of what made that first show special uh they tried 
you know, it wasn't as bad as that Affliction show by any means, but it definitely felt as though it was sort of just kind of its own little thing as opposed to the emergence and the building of this Strike Force brand. Obviously, they would overcome the show. And, uh, you know, obviously you can't book the main event. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if something's going to happen where somebody falls through a cage. So I just sort of felt like it was a little bit of a, a slowdown in the momentum after what was uh, happening in, um, you know, the first show. And I think people expected Belfort to get some sort of spectacular win. But uh, Overeem was just super cautious, and he wasn't going to let that happen. And we know he can, he can do that. He can fight that way. I got to tell you, in researching this, I started um, you know, watching Vitor Belfort fights on YouTube. And so I went from this one, and I got in this whole YouTube sort of chain, and I ended up on, on you went down the You went down the rabbit hole. I, I, I did, you know, and I ended up with, you know, uh, watching Belfort knock out Luke Rockhold, and then I got into, you know, all the trash talk Luke Rockhold's talked, you know, ending with the worst of Luke Rockhold knockouts, and then Michael Bisping and Luke Rockhold. I mean, that that rabbit hole is an amazing rabbit hole <laughs> if you can, you know, but I would say avoid it. You know, all started with, like, trying to remember Belfort and, you know, what he was capable of. You know, we talked a lot about uh, Overeem and sort of, you know, his history. Obviously, there's an entire history with Vitor as well, and, uh, you know, he's still, he's still going. But, you know, I thought that really the takeaways of the show were Kung Lee, Gilbert Melendez, and, and Josh Thompson. You know, those were the highlights. Those were the positives of the show. And they continue to show that they were all in and they were intense and they would become the future stars of this brand. Yeah, I, I, you can just call it a sophomore slump. I, I agree. It just kind of didn't seem, almost seemed like a different promotion from the from the first event. And yeah, yeah I, I think you... You nailed it, and you know it would have been maybe it would have been different if Belfort and Overeem had really put on a fight with a lot of fireworks. But you know, in the end, um, yeah, I, I you know, kind of just kind of just there. Yeah. I, I will mention one of the things I think that and we haven't talked about this, and we're we're going to wrap things up in just a second here. But uh, it's interesting from a booking perspective that you they ended up putting the lightweight championship in the co-main event instead of the main event, and this is always a point of contention in in MMA and in pro wrestling is that you know, the titles should go on last and by and far, um, you know, or far and away by and large, whatever, by and far, <laughs> I just coined a new phrase. So you're Stevie uh, Quadros now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Make, yeah, exactly. Uh, by and large, the UFC is stuck to putting titles on last. Uh, I, I can't think of an event where they haven't done that. I'm sure it's happened, but it, it, by and large, yeah, you see the titles go on last. Well, Coker has been, you can see it from this fight. Coker, um, you know, ha did this uh, in the in the first event, and and then from this event as well, that the main event featured the bigger names, so to speak, and not the title in in the main event. And he did that in both of his first two events, and in Bellator to this day. I mean, we we seem to be getting away somewhat from the, you know, the Tito versus kind of like the legacy stars, the the nostalgic acts in Bellator. At this point, it seems to be getting away from that. Um, to an extent, but yeah, you would see kind of these legacy stars go on last versus the titles. And you would even hear some of the, the, you know, the title holders and their challengers kind of chirping a bit about being unhappy about not getting main event billing. But, but if you look at Coker's history, he's done that from the beginning. This is, and again, I think this is more where you see kind of like pro wrestling influence on the promotions that, that Scott is involved in mm -hmm. uh, because this will happen in WWE sometimes too. And there's always disagreement or, you know, when the undertaker was doing his streak was, should he, you know, should, should, should he go on last? Should that match go on last or should the title match go on last? And, mm -hmm. you know, it seemed to kind of flip flop. So I, we still saw, I, I think more of an evolution of, of Coker's booking strategy and kind of how he looks at fights in this event um but but yeah at the, at the end of the day kind of a lackluster event overall and, and not one i'd recommend um spending a lot of time trying to dig up video on so uh with that we're going to wrap things up uh, coming up in our next episode i'll be talking with the man who won the strike force lightweight title on this card gilbert el, el nino melendez i'm really excited to speak with him i i interviewed him years ago uh before one of his strike force fights I'm, I'm excited to get back in contact with him uh and and somebody that as josh has mentioned really exemplified what strike force was all about uh, after that we'll be covering the tank versus buentello strike force event which uh which featured the only strike force appearance of ufc legend tank abbott as well 
well as the Strike Force debut of the headhunter Paul Buentello, who would go on to become the only or one of only two fighters to challenge for both the Strike Force and heavyweight uh, UFC heavyweight championships. The other one being. Alistair Overeem. Mm -hmm. So very mm -hmm. interesting little uh, historical tidbit there. Uh, so we're going to be covering that in the coming weeks as well. But I want to say thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We appreciate the support as we get this uh, this podcast going. Uh, Josh, hope that you enjoyed uh, talking about Revenge because I had a good time talking about it with you. Yeah, no, it, this is always a pleasure. And um, I just want to tip my hat to you, as always, for your incredible research and uh, just making this stuff seem like it rolls off your tongue. You know, it's really impressive. Well, I appreciate that, and I will expect something to be said along those lines at the end of every single episode going forward. <laughs> um, so, it's in it's it's in uh, my contract. It's right? in your contract. If, if I want to, if I want to appear next time, say it. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> All right. Well, with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. Josh, appreciate your time, fans. We appreciate your time as well and downloading. And uh, in the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and we will talk to you again soon. See ya. Get ready, race fans, because the ultimate NASCAR experience is about to hit the airwaves. Welcome to Pit Pass NASCAR, the podcast that takes you deep into the heart-pounding world of NASCAR racing. Join us each week as we bring you closer to the NASCAR action with exclusive interviews and all the news and rumors you need with your favorite drivers, team members, and industry insiders. So whether you're a fan of super speedways, short ovals, or road racing, or you've just watched Talladega Nights, Pit Pass NASCAR is the podcast you've been waiting for. Get ready to fuel your passion for NASCAR like never before. Subscribe now to Pit Pass NASCAR on your favorite podcast platform or head to evergreenpodcast.com and get ready to join us. Launching in the fall on Evergreen Podcast Network. Follow us on social media at pitpass underscore NASCAR to stay up to date with everything you need to know about the podcast.